Let's open the Scriptures to the letter of Paul to the Galatians. Galatians 5, and then a passage from 2 Timothy chapter 2. We'll begin in Galatians 5, and in connection with what we confess in Article 29 about the marks of Christians, we find here that the Apostle gives us some description of what the Christian life is like. We'll begin at verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. We'll turn now to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and read the verses 14 through 26. Paul writing to Timothy, verse 14, Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity." Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. 
Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. I invite you to turn with me in the Book of Praise to the Belgic Confession, Article 29, where we're hearing a summary of the Word of God concerning the church and the marks of the church, but then we're going to pay particular attention to the third paragraph, which deals with the marks of Christians. We've already touched on some of the other material in this article a few weeks back. Let's read the first three paragraphs of Article 29. We believe that we ought to discern diligently and very carefully from the Word of God what is the true church. For all sects which are in the world today claim for themselves the name of church. We are not speaking here of the hypocrites who are mixed in the church along with the good and yet are not part of the church, although they are outwardly in it. We are speaking of the body and the communion of the true church, which must be distinguished from all sects that call themselves the church. The true church is to be recognized by the following marks. It practices the pure preaching of the gospel. It maintains the pure administration of the sacraments as Christ instituted them. It exercises church discipline for correcting and punishing sins. In short, it governs itself according to the pure word of God, rejecting all things contrary to it and regarding Jesus Christ as the only head. Hereby, the true church can certainly be known, and no one has the right to separate from it. Those who are of the church may be recognized by the marks of Christians. They believe in Jesus Christ, the only Savior, flee from sin and pursue righteousness, love the true God and their neighbor without turning to the right or left, and crucify their flesh and its works. Although great weakness remains in them, they fight against it by the Spirit all the days of their life. They appeal constantly to the blood, suffering, death, and obedience of Jesus Christ, in whom they have forgiveness of their sins through faith in Him. That's as far as we'll go today. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, well, right here in the middle of this article, so well known to describe the marks of the church, we also find a paragraph which describes the marks of Christians. 
You'll recall that in Article 27, we confessed, based on the Word of God, what the church is. In 28, we confessed what our duty toward the church is. And last time in the first round on Article 29, we saw where we can find the church. The marks of the church help us discern which assembly is a sect, perhaps even a sect in which there are many believers, and then also which assembly can rightly be called Christ's church. With all the, the focus on the church, this paragraph on recognizing the marks of Christians can easily get overlooked. And yet, it's just as important as the rest. For the assembly of the true church is composed of true Christians. While there certainly may be Christians outside the church, and that we saw that in Article 28, there must always be Christians inside the church. For the church, by definition, is the assembly of the redeemed. You can't have an assembly which somehow bears the marks of the church but is not filled with the people of God. It's not only the, the or is it not only, rather, the, the sheep of the good shepherd who, who want to hear the voice of the preaching? Is it not only the sheep that will take his encouragement in the sacraments and submit obediently to his correcting hand of discipline via the elders? When you find the true church, you must also find an assembly of true Christians. Church and Christians go together. They belong together. And so I bring you the Word of God as follows. True Christians belong in the true church. We'll see that Christians are known by their faith, their flight, and their fidelity. Sometimes people think that church and Christians are entirely two separate things. Some think of the church as an institution, kind of like a university or a government, whereas Christians are, then are the people who attend the institution. In their mind, it's like students attend a university, you attend McMaster or whatever, or your Redeemer, so Christians attend a church. They go in and out of the church. They may even be members of the church, but Christians are quite distinct, some think, from the institution of the church. And yet, brothers and sisters, the Bible does not speak in that way at all. The church is simply this. It's the assembly of God's people. The church is the, the gathering of Christ's sheep. It's the congregation. Exactly as we are arrayed here today, this is the church, not the building, the congregation, the people. In this assembly, Christ places office bearers over his people to shepherd the flock on his behalf. He expects and he insists that there be good order in the management of the congregation, 1 Corinthians 14, and in the way the church conducts itself, Christ is insistent that the church conducts itself in an orderly, godly fashion, but that does not make the church an institution. One sheep is a Christian. 
a number of sheep gathered together in holy worship under the authority of the good shepherd through his appointed office bearers listening to his voice, that is an assembly of Christians. That is church, the church. The Apostles' Creed already teaches us to keep church and the gathering of Christians together as one concept. Each of us in that creed, we confess, I believe a holy Catholic Christian church, the communion of saints. There's no period after the word church, just a little comma. It's just a further description of church. The church is the communion of saints. The church is the congregation of believers who submit themselves in everything to the voice of the Good Shepherd. The communion, the congregation as a whole, has its marks, but also the individual Christians who make up the communion, we too have marks. Article 29, by bringing up these marks, wants to guard against two errors that were existing then and still today. One is the error taught by Rome, namely that the church is made up of the clergy, the officials appointed by the Roman hierarchy, by the Pope and the archbishops and so on. It's, it's those clergy, says Rome, that make up the church. Where the priest is, there is the church. That's why in, in Roman Catholicism, you can have a priest going to a hospital and administering baptisms. You can have a priest issuing communion in different places because where the priest goes, there you have the church. That's what they say. But the Bible simply says the church is the assembly of believers. It's not in one single office or office bearer. The other error on the other side was taught by the Anabaptists, so Mennonites that we know today. They were so often reacting to the corruption of the Roman church and they thought almost the opposite, that the church was instead a, a gathering of virtually spotless Christians. They said the church can only be made up of professing Christians who visibly live a godly life, which is why the Anabaptists exclude babies and small children from church membership. Only faith, only godly conduct with faith. Once that's demonstrated, could a person then be admitted to the church? No one is considered a Christian until they can have faith and godly conduct. That's also why Anabaptists historically, you can think of the Amish, think of the Hutterites, they do this even still to this day. They administer discipline using the ban. They shun people. If they don't live up to the code of holiness established by the community, they are under the ban, they are removed from the community because in their mind the church has to be pure and holy. There cannot be impurity in the church. But what our Anabaptist friends forget, however, is that so long as we are in this life, there will be no spotless church because there is no spotless Christian. And the Bible tells us to expect that too. The Lord Jesus in many parables, for example, speaks about a mixture among the people of God, that there will always be chaff mixed in with the wheat, weeds with the good crop, wolves in sheep's clothing, goats mixed in with the sheep. 
Article 29 brings that out in the first paragraph where we confess we are not speaking here of the hypocrites who are mixed in the church along with the good and yet are not part of the church, although they are outwardly part of the church. The Lord Jesus speaks about hypocrites on numerous occasions. Hypocrites, they're always going to be inside the church, at least for a time, and yet they're not truly part of the church. They don't actually belong, even though they're, they're sitting in the pews. They don't actually belong. Kind of like kidney stones in your body. Some of us know about kidney stones. Some of us have had the unfortunate experience of having to pass a kidney stone. And it can range from, from discomfort to severe discomfort to a lot of pain as the stone passes through your body. Eventually, that kidney stone has to be ejected from the body as something foreign to the body. It was in the body, but it doesn't belong. That's what hypocrites are. At a certain moment, they will be ejected, either in this life or in the final judgment. That's why the Belgic Confession speaks in the third paragraph of those who are of the church, meaning those who truly belong to the church. Those who have a, a rightful, genuine place in the assembly of the redeemed. That description can apply to individual believers who are currently outside the church. Perhaps they exist independently on their own. Maybe they're caught up in a sect or a false church, but they're genuine believers. In that case, we may say about such believers that they are of the church. They, they, have, they belong. They should be inside the church. And we want to say to them, by all means, come on in. I can see you're a Christian. You have the marks of a Christian. Come on with us. You have a place waiting for you here. You exhibit the marks of a Christian. So what are the marks of a Christian? What are the marks of someone who belongs in the church? Well, the first mark, we confess, is that such a person believes in Jesus Christ, the only Savior. Pretty straightforward, but it's really foundational. A church member is not a Christian unless he or she has true faith. So you can be a fourth-generation member of the church. You can have been on the membership role for decades. But if you do not have true faith, you are not one of the redeemed. Unless you repent, all you are is a kidney stone. A hypocrite. And what is true faith? Well, faith, faith trusts in Jesus Christ as my only Savior. And notice the word only mentioned here in our confession. There's no sense here at all that I can save myself or that I can contribute to salvation in any way. I don't add my good works into the mix like Rome teaches but I rely exclusively on my Savior and all that the Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished on my behalf. A true Christian does not look to him or herself or to anybody else for salvation, but only to the Lord Jesus. The last sentence of the paragraph puts it this way, Christians appeal constantly to the blood, suffering, death, and obedience of Jesus Christ in whom they have forgiveness of their sins through faith 
in Him. We look only to Jesus. And we have to do that too, don't we? We feel the need for that if we're honest. Where would we be without the constant bathing in the blood of the Lamb? We make a very open and biblical confession in the sentence before. We say, although great weakness remains in Christians, they fight against it by the Spirit all the days of their life. So there's the fight. We'll talk about that in a moment. But let's never forget the great weakness that remains in true Christians. This is what the Anabaptists forgot. This is where they went overboard. They were looking for Christians who were beyond weakness, Christians who were beyond failings and traps of sin. Only those who consistently lived a holy life need apply. Well, brothers and sisters, that would be a mighty small congregation, wouldn't it? If you and I had to have a perfectly consistent holy life, that'd be a congregation of zero. According to the Word of God, a true Christian is one who recognizes his or her sin, hates his sin, knows he has offended Almighty God with his sin, wishes with all of his heart to get rid of the sin, mourns over that sin, and goes to Christ with his sin and lays down that sin. That's what a Christian does. The true church is, is filled with true Christians who are strugglers. People who trip, people who fall in many different ways, people who are ashamed of their sin and guilt, people who are humble in the sight of the Lord, but who also find profound comfort in the blood of Jesus Christ. We appeal not to our good works. We appeal not to our good track record. We haven't got one anyway but we appeal to Jesus' track record, to all that He has done. And we pray to our, our Father, Father, receive us in mercy for the sake of the suffering and death and obedience of Your Son. And for His sake alone, forgive us all our sins. And so they are forgiven. That's what God promises to true Christians. It's in that spirit that we also need to approach one another in the church. One struggler helping another struggler. We Christians have our struggles, and sometimes the struggles of certain Christians look pretty bad. Christians addicted, let's say, to alcohol or drugs. They are people who struggle hard against it and yet are often overcome with that desire to indulge. They feel enslaved. They feel powerless. They feel like they're a hopeless case. They, they often feel like trash because they can't get on top of the sin. And yet if I don't have that particular addiction, does that really make me so different? I've got a hundred other sinful desires I'm too ashamed to mention. Is my sinful desire to indulge a craving of my flesh, is that really so different 
from a craving to drink or get high. The effects of my particular sin may not be as obvious at first glance, but my sin still keeps me apart from my God, still keeps me feeling distant and empty inside. And when I'm honest, when I'm honest my, my sin that I fall into, it makes me feel like trash too. And when I can't stop how easy it is to think, I am just a hopeless case. Well, brothers and sisters, with our Lord Jesus Christ, there is no hopeless case. Nobody's hopeless to Him. He accepts the hopeless cases. He accepts all who admit they have no power in themselves and want instead His power to go to work for them. He calls out to everyone who realizes they have no good in themselves and who want from Him His good. To all who find their hands empty and their hearts aching, the Lord Jesus has come. Come to me and I will fill your hands with blessing and I will set your heart at peace. In Christ, because of all He's done, we have forgiveness. And in Christ, we have daily renewal of our lives, of our spirits. Christians look to Christ. Christians go to Christ. Christians run to Christ for cover. We run to Him over and over and over again until the thing we're running from is no threat anymore. For Christians indeed are runners. We are spiritual sprinters who know how to book it when temptation approaches. We confess that too. Christians not only believe in Jesus Christ, the only Savior, but we say they also flee from sin and pursue righteousness. I want to focus on that word flee. We flee from sin. That means we run away from it with a sense of fear. Like some big enemy is chasing after us with a, with a weapon to destroy us, if that was happening, you would take off like a bullet. Well, when we see temptation coming, we take off like a bullet. That's what Christians do. That's what we ought to do. Do we have that instinct to run and flee from sin? There's a lot of talk these days about the fight or flight instinct that we apparently have when our body senses danger approaching. It prepares to do one or the other, flight, which is flee, or fight. Even animals do this. Many animals, when they sense danger, they'll first try to run away, and only when they're cornered do they stop and fight back. Do we as Christians have the good sense to book it, to run from temptation? Paul commands us that in 2 Timothy 2, which we read. He says to Timothy, and so to us, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. That's one of the marks of a Christian. Not, not only do we believe in Christ, but we have this desire to never fall into sin and a willingness to do whatever it takes 
to avoid caving into temptation. The prayer that Christ taught us goes in that direction, right? Father, lead me not into temptation. That's the daily prayer of the Christian's heart. Is it the daily prayer of our hearts? There are many things which are in themselves sins. And these kinds of things every believer must flee from. But there are other things which are not so clear-cut, other things which may be well fine in themselves for certain people perhaps, but, but for me personally, because of my own weaknesses and you with your weaknesses, these certain things form a powerful temptation for me or maybe for you. And this is the tricky part. Are you and I aware of how powerful these things are, uh, how powerful a draw they have on us? Are we aware, in other words, of our own weaknesses? Do we avoid situations that would expose ourselves to temptations to our weak spots? So, for example, if I, or maybe people close to me, have, if I, if I have trouble drinking, like I drink too much. I become intoxicated easily. Would it not be better if when I'm throwing a party to throw a dry party, no alcohol? Or do I think to myself, I know when to stop. I can stop. I know where the line is. But really, I don't. Or if I think of my friends who don't know where the line is and have trouble, do I think, you know what? That's their problem. They have to learn to control themselves. I'm, I want to have alcohol at my party. I'm going to do that. They have to figure it out for themselves. Is that how we approach things? Am I so strong that I have no need to have checks on my internet usage? No need for a filter? No need for someone to hold me accountable? Do I, as a parent, assume that my child, my children, are not going to look at porn on the web? That would be naive, wouldn't it? And dangerous, too. If there is a group of friends with whom I hang around but end up doing with these friends really wrong things or stupid things or harmful things, what should I do? Well, Paul says, everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. We have to flee sin. So if I hang around wickedness, if I don't mind its presence and maybe indulge in it once in a while, I have to ask myself, am I truly serving the Lord Jesus Christ or am I serving the Lord me? Am I my own Lord? The true Christian prays Lord, lead me not into temptation. And so I'm going to leave this group of friends. I'm going to seek out the company of godly companions. And I'm not going to expose myself to what I know is a weakness for me. This, I think, is where hypocrites often lose their way. You know, most hypocrites in the church do not think of themselves as hypocrites. Right? Like the Pharisees, you know, the classic hypocrites in the New Testament? They didn't think they were hypocrites. 
They thought they were the cat's meow. They thought they were the leading lights of the church. They thought they were genuine people of God. A few, perhaps, know they are living a lie and they know they're being duplicitous, but many convince themselves that it's okay. Many Christians, people that confess Christ, they, they convince themselves it's okay to, to seek forgiveness in the blood of Christ, but, but not bother pursuing uh, a life of righteousness, not bothering to flee from sin, not to make changes to my lifestyle of sin. I can claim the forgiveness, but I don't need to change my life. They convince themselves that's okay because I'm forgiven. Well, congregation, I'm here to tell you it's not okay. It's absolutely not okay to do that. That is the hypocrisy the Bible speaks of. And if this is your life, if you've got some portion of your life that you're indulging in sin, not repenting, thinking that's okay, you do need to repent and you have to start running the other way from sin. Lest the Lord send upon you His covenant punishments, even as we saw this morning He did to King Jehoram. So we flee. That's our posture. We try to avoid the temptation. We flee from it. But you know, sometimes true Christians, we get cornered by temptation. It confronts us head on and we can't escape it. At a moment like that, flight is not possible. We have to fight. And fight it we do. We don't fight it in our own strength. Really important that we, we understand that well. None of what we do as Christians is ever in our own power, our own will. Listen to Article 29. Although great weakness remains in them, they fight against it, that sin, by the Spirit all the days of their life. Christians fight this fight in the strength of Christ's Spirit. That's how we do it. The Spirit lives in us, and He does the fighting through us. Paul is saying the same thing in Galatians 5, which we read, verse 16. He charges us, but I say walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these two are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So aside from these attacks from the outside, temptations that come from the outside, Christians have this inner fight going on constantly. Inside of us is our old nature, which only wants to sin, which only wants to serve self, which wants to be disobedient to our Creator. But also inside of us is our new nature, led by the Spirit of Christ, and it wants to do only what is right. It wants to serve our Master. It wants to obey God's commandments, and, and we feel this battle in us all the time. It can be a very wearying battle, can't it? Even as you get a bit on in your years, maybe when we're a bit younger, we think, well, maybe when I'm older, maybe when I'm senior, in my senior years, this uh, fight against certain sins is going to diminish. The power of sin does not diminish as we get older. 
Talk to some of our older brothers and sisters. Ask them about the struggle against inclination to sin. Ask them about whether they feel stronger as a senior Christian than they did as a younger Christian. The battle, it never seems to go away. I, I, I feel attracted to this sin or to that sin. I can't seem to entirely get free from its grip, maybe even decades on. And then it's not hard to think of ourselves, what a, what a basket case I am, what a, what a loser I am. Well, beloved, take comfort in this. The sins and the shortcomings which you see in yourself, which bother you and distress you, they are all covered by the blood of Christ. They are. By repenting and believing in the Lord Jesus, they're all covered. So no guilt sticks to you. And then also... Take this gospel truth, the fact that you are battling, even perhaps into your old age. The battle itself is proof that the Spirit of Christ lives in you because without the Spirit of Christ, there would be no resistance to the sinful nature within we would just be giving in. So even though it's a tiresome battle, you are not, you are not a loser living in defeat, but you are in Christ and you already share in His victory. You are fighting a battle in a war that's already been won by the Lord. Keep that in mind in your personal battles. It's a battle that we are called to fight out of love and fidelity. The great motive for fighting sin lies in what the confession says is another mark of the Christian, that Christians love the true God and their neighbor without turning to the right or to the left. Faith in, in Jesus Christ never leaves us cold, but it unites our hearts to His heart in a bond of true covenant love and loyalty, or to use the word fidelity, loyalty to God. The Lord Jesus told us on a couple of occasions that loving God and our neighbor is the summary of the law. Paul says the same in Galatians 5, verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul is using covenant language. This is recalling that the framework of our relationship with God, God deals with us in love. He extends love to us, and He wants love back from us. How do we show our love to God? We do that certainly by worshiping Him, but also we do it by doing good to our neighbor. That's an expression of our love for God. And that's often the hard part for us, isn't it? It's one thing to spend time praying to God, reading His Word and singing His praises, and those are beautiful, necessary things to do, but how easy is it when it comes to loving our neighbors? How easy is it to 
as we confess, to crucify our flesh and its works, just as Paul commands in Galatians 5. He commands us there to get rid of things like enmity, strife, division, dissension. Those are works of the flesh. Those are evil works. Do you have any strife in your heart towards somebody else in the congregation or elsewhere? Strife is hard feelings. Hard feelings towards somebody so that you think poorly of them. You have a bad opinion of them. You don't speak to them, won't fellowship with them. And probably there's some cause for that. Maybe at some point in the past, your feelings were hurt. Something was done. Maybe you had a disagreement. Maybe you can't stand the way they think. And so you, you just cut off contact. You avoid a fellow church member all of that is strife. All of that is enmity. It creates division where there ought to be unity. And Paul says, the Holy Spirit says, that's a work of the flesh. That's a work of sin. A true Christian will never let that rest. It will not allow that. A Christian will not allow that to fester in his or her heart, but will recognize the root of their own bitterness as the first thing to repent from and then seek out reconciliation. A true Christian will approach the neighbor with the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, patience, gentleness, kindness, seeking to heal, seeking to reconcile, seeking to overcome difficulty, seeking to build bridges. And here we need to remind ourselves of the gospel promises. What does the Lord promise us as we do this hard work of, of reconciling? Are the disagreements between us as members of the church, members of Christ, can they be so massive, so sharp, so drastic that the Spirit of Christ is not able to bring healing? Is the mercy and grace of the Lord Jesus toward you and me so little that we cannot extend the same toward others? Does He not promise to equip us with everything we need to do His will? Can His Spirit not make a bridge where there is no bridge? Lean into those promises, brothers and sisters. Go to work on relationships that have been damaged. Make peace. This is what the Lord wants from true Christians. That would be fidelity toward His covenant. In church, we, we look for followers of Christ, genuine followers, not sinless people who never slip, who never fall, but people who know their sin, people who repent from their sin, people who trust that their sin is forgiven in Christ, people who run from temptation and fight the inner battles and the outer battles that come their way in the strength of His Spirit, and people who are moved by God's love to love their neighbor, all their neighbors, even if it's hard. 
if you have a heart of faith, if you find in yourself an instinct to flight and fight, as well as fidelity to your covenant partner, to the Lord, out of love, then you are a true Christian, and you belong in the true church. Amen.